From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. In previous episodes, we've heard from business leaders about the renewed sense of purpose driving executives and their organizations, particularly during the current crisis. Earlier in the year, we spoke with Hubert Jolie, the former executive chairman and CEO of Best Buy, about how he placed corporate purpose at the center of the retail giant's transformation. We also recently shared a panel discussion led by our senior partner, Bruce Simpson, with executives from the Marks & Spencer Group, the Campbell Soup Company, Best Buy, and Telefonica, who shared their experience establishing and driving purpose within their organizations. And most recently, we featured two episodes on the four shifts that CEOs are making in the way they're leading in this moment that hold great promise for both business and society. In today's episode, we'll hear from two award-winning American economists about how capitalism and corporate purpose could evolve to more broadly benefit society, especially in this current time of crisis. Yuval Otzman is a senior partner in our London office and spoke with Professor Anne Case and Nobel Prize winner Angus Deaton about their new book, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. The book highlights the social and economic forces negatively impacting the working class. The authors discuss with Yuval why it's important to make capitalism work for everyone and the role CEOs are starting to play in making that happen. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Here's Yuval. Let me first start by introducing our two guests, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, who are joining me from Princeton, New Jersey. Anne Case is the Alexander Stewart 1886 Professor of Economics and Public Affairs Emeritus at Princeton University. Angus Deaton, winner of the 2015 Nobel Prize in Economics, is the Dwight D. Eisenhower Professor of Economics and International Affairs Emeritus at Princeton University and Presidential Professor of Economics at the University of South California. It will take me quite a long time to list all your accomplishments, so let me just mention a few. Angus, you at uh, age 33 were the first ever recipient of the Frisch Medal, and in fact, you're still one of only five people who has ever won both the Frisch Medal and the Nobel Prize. And you won the Kenneth Arrow Award in 2003, and then from 2015 to 2017, you were on the Kenneth Arrow Award Committee, and from 2017 to 2019, on the President's Committee on the National Medal of Science. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Let me start by saying that your book has inspired me. It's certainly one of my favorite uh, books of the year so far. But at the same time, this is not a happy book in some respects. I mean, there's a lot of sobering uh, information in it, and the trends that you illuminate are obviously concerning, especially since they've been happening partly in uh, good economic times. So I'd like to hear more from you in this conversation in terms of where you see this is headed, in particular in light of COVID-19, which is, of course, putting a lot of pressure on the lives and the livelihoods of the same people that you've been writing about. And then more broadly, how you see the future of capitalism evolving so maybe if uh, one of you can get us started with just sharing uh, more about deaths of despair uh, and, and why is it that they've been growing over the last few years, in fact, for quite a long time, but even in the last few years? Sure. In addition to COVID-19, there's this invisible epidemic 
that has been growing in America, which is death from suicide, drug overdose, and alcoholic liver disease. So in 2018, those three causes of death took about 160,000 lives. So it puts it on scale with the COVID epidemic, but long after there's a, um, a vaccine or treatments for COVID, unfortunately, there's no reason to believe that unless things change, we won't see people killing themselves in these ways in midlife. You know, our story is one of sort of gradual disintegration of the working class life as wages and as job opportunities and then the social sequelae of that um, all took, you know, generated despair. Um, and when, you know, the name Deaths of Despair seemed like an appropriate label for these deaths, suicide, of course, is the ultimate death of despair. But these other deaths from drug overdose and from alcoholism are also, to some extent, deaths from your own behavior. You know, and when you talked at the beginning about these deaths happening in good times, these have not been such good times for the people who are dying. I mean, and that's really part of the story, which is if you look at less educated Americans, Americans without a four-year college degree, life really hasn't been so good for them for a long time. And the people who are exempt are the people who are the educated elite, if you like, the third of the population that has a four-year BA, which has become one of the great dividing lines in American society, probably much more so than in most other societies. Also, behind those mortality numbers, what we find is that year on year for people without a college degree, their reports of pain have been going up. Their reports of their mental health have been deteriorating. And we find that their social lives, their family lives are coming apart. And that's not happening for people with a college degree. So we find that having that four-year degree is, is a really sharp knife, which divides the country into really people who are thriving and people who are not. What are some of the top reasons why you think it has gotten you know, worse for this you know, population in the U.S.? Well, a good place to start is with what's happening to jobs and to earnings. So, you know, the economy has been doing okay on average, but most of the benefits of that economic growth have been going to people with a four-year degree. But if you look at what's happened to wages for the people who entered the labor market since 1970 or so, and who don't have a four-year BA, that trend has been just consistently downwards. So we're not people who believe that being out of the labor force, being unemployed or not being able to find a job or whatever, tends to cause people to kill themselves or to fall into despair. That's not the story we're telling at all. For one thing, these deaths of despair were rising well before the Great Recession. So you just can't link this to fluctuations in employment over the business cycle, if you like. But we think of this wages and jobs as, as the sort of foundation on which working class life is based. The more proximate effects of that, that for instance, it's harder to get married. There are fewer people without a BA who have good prospects. Social roots of community 
you know, unions used to be really important in the private sector, and they were a very important part of social life. And a lot of social activities are arranged around churches, and that's sort of falling away. So there's been a sort of deinstitutionalization of working class people in America, which has undermined their communities, their sense of purpose, and their sense of belonging. Much of your book is focusing on the white, non-working, uneducated class, but clearly, you know, I know that you um, also have some views and, and, and I'm sure a lot of research and knowledge about the African-Americans and its continued adversity for that group. Absolutely. When we started this work, which was back in 2014, African-American mortality from drugs and alcohol were falling year on year on year. Though no, their overall mortality is still much yeah. higher than whites, as it is today. But there, but there was real convergence between black and white mortality. Uh, but part of the convergence between black and white mortality was happening because white mortality was actually rising. So our focus initially was on whites because they were the group that was moving in the wrong direction. Why is this hitting white so hard? And what we're seeing now is the wheel coming around again. That in the late 1960s and in the 1970s, when manufacturing pulled out of the inner cities, taking all the jobs with it, it hit the African-American community in cities very hard. That's when marriage rates started to fall. That's when out-of-wedlock childbearing increased dramatically and the communities were hit with a crack epidemic. Well, now we, the wheel coming around again, we're seeing it coming this time for the white working class, where uh, the jobs have disappeared, leading to all these knock-on effects that we think are incredibly important. Um, it's obviously not a perfect analogy. Whites have always been in a position of privilege relative to blacks. Racism uh, overt and covert are, are, are always with us. But there were enough similarities that it made us feel that this is now the white working class joining the black working class. We should also note, too, that the deaths of despair are coming for African-Americans now, too. So that, as Anne said, we, we did the initial work on this in 2013, 2014, and there was no indication of any uptick in deaths. But after 2013, you know, and just as we were writing, when the data came in, it turned out that black mortality was turning back up again. And what that turned out to be was opioids coming to the inner cities, especially fentanyl. And no one quite understands this, but it's mostly cities in the East. I mean, we don't think that it's an opioid epidemic with these other things tacked on. We, these deaths of despair started to rise before OxyContin was brought to market. But what happened was that it found really fertile ground. And you did, you did talk, Anne, about convergence uh, between white and black. And of course, you and others have researched also the perception, at least for some of the white working class, that they feel that their situation has got worse relative to the black Americans. Yeah, there's um, Carol Anderson had a great quote, which was that if if you're if you become used to privilege, then equality seems like oppression. And Andrew Churlin, who writes about the fact that 
if you've been living with this your entire life, when it's taken away, you feel like you've been de deprived of something that was your due. But I don't think there would be anger about that if the, if the pie was being divided in such a way that working class people got more of it. That's I think, I think another important part of that story is is the shifting politics in the United States. So that you know, up until the seventies. Union members, private union members, public union members were very strongly allied with the Democratic Party. But they slowly shifted, pretty much deliberately shifted, to an alliance between the educated elite on the one hand and minorities on the other hand. And that left the less educated white people with absolutely nowhere to go and a feeling that they were not represented in politics at all. And also this sense in which African Americans and other minorities were reaping some of the benefits of belonging to this political alliance, and they were not. But also, you, these people, you know, you ask them, they just don't believe that politics is any use to them at all, because they certainly weren't getting anything from the prevailing state of affairs. To switch to a few topics around where you see the future of capitalism, which is the second half of your book title, the overall take that you have is actually quite optimistic in the sense that capitalism can can work better if it's going to be fixed in some areas. So I'd like to get just for you to share a bit more about your, you know, an hopeful version of the future of capitalism. Well, you know, for me, I, my last book, which was called The Great Escape, was, you know, about how poverty and ill health and deprivation had diminished over the last 250 years in the world. And capitalism was a very positive force in that book. You know, and I spent a lot of my life studying India and China and, you know, the extraordinary um, benefits that have come to India and Chinese people um, from globalization and from the adoption of something that's something like market capitalism. And so, you know, I'm very much primed to believe that this is a really good system. I studied it, I looked at it. it it's brought enormous benefits, not continuous benefits. And it's actually very important um, to look back. And, you know, you've got the Holocaust in there. You've got the Great Leap Forward. You've got Stalin and Hitler and all the rest of it. So, you know, no one should think that this is steady progress. But, you know, this is an enormous force for good that needs to be regulated to benefit everyone. People need to recognize, though, that not everything can be delivered by the market. If we come to a recognition that there are some areas in which the market is not well-suited to provide for us, we might be able then to take those things out of sort of the system and and make for a better future. That that's way. right. I mean, I, I really do think that it's market fundamentalism that's the problem, not capitalism, the belief that the market can do everything. And if you go down that route and think government can do nothing and government is the problem, not the solution, you're going to finish up with a revolution and lose the benefits of capitalism. And, and you know, we've got to make sure that the benefits of the system are widely shared and not leave groups who feel seriously disenfranchised politically, socially, you know, and economically. And I think that's true beyond the United States. I mean, I think maybe the social welfare states in Europe have protected 
against some of the worst things and the deaths of despair that we've seen here. But, you know, the politics and, you know, the disenfranchisement of the old working classes that used to support central left social democrats throughout Europe is, is happening in Europe as well as happening in the United States. Another area where you know, economists and politicians often disagree is the topic of trade. Most economists are quite pro-trade and free trade and globalization. In, in politics, this has become quite a controversial topic on both sides of um, American politics for different reasons. Clearly, some parts of the American economy were particularly affected by trade and globalization. And then, of course, within COVID-19, globalization sentiment is going to get yet a new angle, probably in the political debate. So where do you see this is headed? And, and that sort of you could describe a bit more the impact that you think it had, had on white, non-educated Americans. You know, again, it was one of these things where politics was sort of tone deaf to most of the people who were being hurt here. I mean, in Britain and in the U.S., there are now almost no one that doesn't have a college degree in Parliament or in Congress, for instance. And so, you know, these people that really used to be heavily represented are not there anymore. And their voices, therefore, moved out of official politics into things like Brexit or voting for Donald Trump. And it's clear there'll be a lot of short-run pressure to pull back from globalization. And that's something, in some sense, we should resist because... You know, globalization, again, is a source of prosperity. And, you know, it's sort of like breaking machines and so on, that automation is a source of prosperity. And also, the pandemic is a very strange thing, because usually if you have an epidemic, for instance, you want to be globalized because you can get help from somewhere else. All right. And it's just when it's a pandemic where the whole world is looking for testing kits, the whole world um, is looking for glass vials or the whole world, you know, is looking for ventilators or they were for a while when the the trading system just doesn't really help you very much because you can't import masks from China because everybody else wants them too. But so one shouldn't forget that in a, a normal disaster, like an earthquake or a hurricane or a local disease, globalization is extremely beneficial. And, you know, we're going to have to build a much more secure and robust capitalism, something that's more resilient. But I think we ought to be resisting the calls for wholesale closing the borders. And I mean, if you go all the way back, for example, to what happened to the black working class, it happened when we started to import cars from Japan and Germany, right? And then when, when it was full-on globalization, that's when it also started to hit the white working class. You know, in our trade courses, we train people up to think, well, there are winners and losers. But if the winners outweigh the losers in terms of benefits, then go for it. Except that in the U.S., we call them losers, right? We, and we say, you're on your own, and they're sort of cast out. And um, I think we are reaching a point of reckoning very soon where if we don't start to think about dividing the pie in a different way, there may not be any pie left to, to distribute. And of course, another massive global force in the same direction is the impact of technology and automation. We at McKinsey have talked about up to 35% of jobs being automated by 2030. 
probably coming bigger and faster as a result of what we're experiencing now with more pressure on companies to be less reliant on employees in uh, plants and so on. So, and, and in addition to that, obviously, regulation is really struggling with dealing with the tech companies. Uh, they're coming up with more innovation and more ideas and concepts faster than regulators are able to learn and agree on them. So, so this is another pretty significant shift in the economy that yeah, the new capitalism is not fully adapted to yet. No, no, that's right. No regulation. And, you know, there's a big argument going on, which I'm sure you're aware of in your world and in our world between economists who think the tech firms are, you know, spinning gold out of straw and those who think they're a danger to um, all of us. And I think that's going to be made worse by COVID. It's also true that if we limit globalization, that's not going to cause a wholesale re reshoring of jobs. And it's much more likely to cause a wholesale further explosion of automation to replace the foreign workers by machines. There are things in the tax system that we could possibly do to help that. Like there's a lot of incentives for investment and, you know, rapid write-offs and stuff like that which probably favors automation at the expense of labor and is not particularly helpful um, in this context. Another topic that I wanted to cover with you, which I think is quite interesting because you're providing both points of view about it in the book, is small businesses. When you look at the 1% and the 0.1%, small business owners take quite a big share of that. So clearly there is a, a strong impact in the economy for powerful small business owners. Uh, at the same time, the barriers for new players to enter with concentration increasing in the market has actually become harder for entrepreneurs to be successful. And if you look at the COVID-19 impact, the companies are proving more resilient compared to small businesses. So concentration may actually increase as a result of COVID-19. So how do you see capitalism shaping between small businesses and, and sort of large uh, industry leaders? Well, you know, there's an argument that we have too many small businesses. And um, they're certainly, as you said at the beginning, they're very politically connected, uh, well connected, partly because their trade organizations are split all over the country. And it may be that most innovation actually happens in large firms and not so much in small firms. So I think you can argue that both ways. I know that small firms are regarded as part of sort of apple pie and motherhood in America. But a lot of small firms are become subject of catch and kill, right? So the big firms want to make sure that they don't face competition. So they buy it and kill it. And I think that the FTC should be on the lookout for those sorts of purchases by the big firms. So I certainly think it's something we have to worry with about in COVID because a lot of businesses are going to go under, um, small ones as well as some bigger ones. So there's going to be consolidation for sure. Um, concentration and consolidation are not necessarily bad. And these debates about how to regulate big tech are going to be a very important part of intellectual discussion and policy discussion over the next few years. And COVID's going to make that more urgent. And, and another thing that links up with our book there is that this move away to E from non-E 
is going to favor more educated people relative to less educated people. We've seen that with social distancing in COVID, that people like Ann and I and you are sitting at home, you know, working behind your TV screens. You're getting paid just like you were being paid before. We've probably got more time to write and to think about things than we had before. But if you're a less educated person, if you work in a part of retail that's been shut down, your job has become a much more dicey operation than it was before. You may get it back, you may not get it back. Or if you were an essential worker, you're much more at risk. So you've got a situation where the people on top are, you know, their incomes are going to go on doing fine. The people on the bottom are more likely to get sick and more likely to lose income. So these gaps of both health and income that we document in our book are going to be widened by COVID. I think that's a very important realization. We don't know the educational composition of people who are dying from COVID yet. And we won't know that until they've collected all the death certificates. But all the indications are that it would be around the way we're talking about. Yeah, no, and I think that I had the same thought exactly as I had. I read your book in the first few weeks of COVID-19 and the impact would be probably disproportionately harsher on the same population of non-educated that you're documenting in the book. You could have a period of high unemployment for a long time, maybe 10% or 8%. The share of capital and GDP has been going up for some years, and this could push that along further. So, you know, maybe the stock market doing relatively well is not as irrational as people think it is. You know, in the future, there are going to be more profits and lower wages. That could certainly have that effect. One of the things that makes me more optimistic, although again, it's a bit anecdotal at this stage, is I am hearing a lot of CEOs uh, more than I have ever in a short period of time talk about the pressure that they feel to do the right thing and to, you know, play a bigger positive role in society, talking about a new social contract because consumers, customers, suppliers, employees are all going to respond uh, if they're not seeing their companies becoming more responsible for that. And possibly or hopefully, maybe that starts the kind of momentum that you're hoping for uh, in the book as well. We've also been hearing the CEOs say this, but it'll be really interesting to see how you operationalize some of these things. Like right after there was a big push for that, COVID hit. So we don't, we, we won't really know for a long time. I, th I think it's very encouraging that CEOs are talking this way, but I think it's very much in their own interest because mm -hmm. if they don't do something about it, there's a real danger that post-COVID that they'll get regulated in a way that they don't like very much. There really is, I think, going to be a very lively discussion about regulation, maybe not as serious as it was 100 years ago, but there's the same sort of feelings that we've got this gigantic inequality. We've got this COVID came along that's going to expand inequalities and make them look even more apparent than they were before. And corporations had better be on the right side of that. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of momentum. So maybe just to finish off this great conversation, I'd love to hear if there's any other kind of advice that, you know, if you think about both policymakers and executives, what, what should they take from the things that you've learned in research, uh, everything that's going on in capitalism now, or that you wish that they would be a positive force for? We haven't talked at all about education, even though education is the big divide. 
And we have to, as a country, I think, make a decision about whether or not we're going to do the heavy lift it would take to revamp K through 12 education, to give students who are not college bound the skill set that they need to enter the labor force. We've also got to make capitalism work for everybody. So everybody has to share in this somehow. One of the big differences between Europe and the US is that Europe has a value-added tax. And that value-added tax, many people think it's regressive, but it's used to fund progressive policies. And it's used to fund income support, unemployment support on a national level, which we really do not have here at all. And it may be that what happens with COVID would make that a more promising option. We we obviously could have had a an hour conversation just about education, which I'm sure you have a lot of views on also as being educators yourself. Uh, and the impact, I think we're going to see more disruptive disruption in education in the next five years than we've seen in the last 50 years. And, and obviously that's going to be quite interesting in terms of hopefully how that could make education cheaper and more accessible for a bigger part of the population. I also think that the role that companies can play, and I think this is what you wanted to say, and in certifying and reskilling and helping less educated people to be equivalent to educated in a a way that would then, of course, improve their life afterwards. It's quite significant. Absolutely. A bigger role for maybe community colleges and community colleges working together with business. um, Some of that is happening now, but yeah. More of that. Many thanks to Yuval, Anne, and Angus for this discussion. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future episode, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to receive email alerts as we publish new insights, you can sign up on the strategy and corporate finance practice section of mckinsey.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at mckstrategy, connect with us on LinkedIn by entering McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance in the search bar to visit our practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.